0: Feels like summer is in the air. Time to open up the windows and let out that bad air. This gallery, mm, it could get rather musty after a winter shut up from the outside. Then again, perhaps not. These modern times with its modern airs. I cannot count how often every day I wish I could go back to smelling horse manure rather than those rank diesel fumes from passing bosses. There was an earthy honesty to horse manure, and it didn't give you lung cancer. On the other hand, we need not worry about the plague. WERE YOU AWARE THAT PEOPLE OF OLDEN DAYS BELIEVE THE PLAGUE TO BE CAUSED BY AIRBORNE MALADIES? INDEED, CONSIDER FOR A MOMENT THIS PLAGUE, DR. MUSK. I'M QUITE FOND OF THEM. I HAVE A HUMBLE COLLECTION OF MY OWN, BUT THIS ONE IS MY FAVORITE. THIS ONE STILL CONTAINS THE dried FLOWERS FROM INSIDE THE CROW'S BEAK. Pardon me. A little dusty. I shall speak to Hazel about that. This evening's story is based on the very medieval premise of bad airs and the diseases that were believed to be spread by them. Now, close your eyes. Release your imagination. Good. Feel yourself drifting back to a time that never was. That's it. We are going to have an adventure.
1: ring a ring of roses by Simon Kewin Red lights flickered all across the board, filling one wall of Dartford Vapour Monitoring Station. The tiny gas flames in the bulbs hissed, their combined sound angrier and angrier as more and more sparked into life. Bleed Nell Albert Crow watched as the entire southeastern corner of England went red, a great bite taken out of Kent. It wasn't possible. More red bulbs lit up, further and further inland. Gale-force winds today, of course. Any bad air coming off the channel would move at quite a lick. At this rate, it would hit the London Low Miasma Zone in, what, an hour? Maybe less. But it was vast. It couldn't be real. He glanced at the brass dial on the wall next to the map like a ship's clock, but with 36 numbers around its circumference, one all the way up to XXXV1. The single black hand wavered on the one, as the wind gusted outside. The station's olfactometers had picked nothing up. He didn't trust them. Thirty years of Aperman, he believed only his own nose. He stepped out onto the narrow balcony that ran round the top of the tall, red-brick tower he manned and faced southeast. Wind streamed into his face, sharp on his cheeks. A lazy wind, his old dad would have called it, one that didn't bother to go round you, "'Albert clutched the iron railing, closed his eyes and sniffed deeply. "'Definitely something. "'The faint stench of decay in the air. Cholera, if he was any judge. "'A bad death, that. "'Still, it was very faint. "'Something must be wrong with the lights. "'On a bad day, two or three lit up, not thirty. "'Had to be a glitch in the telegraphy or some such.' Since the war started and the army took over, everything had gone haywire. You didn't know what was an exercise and what was real. Most likely some toff of a colonel had closed the wrong circuit up in Whitehall. All the same, Albert strapped his nosegay over his face. Complacency kills. He strolled right around the circular balcony, forty-five feet up in the air, streets and houses arrayed beneath him like children's toys. Soldiers scurried around like dull green beetles darting between sandbagged bunkers, practicing their defensive manoeuvres. Everything normal. Farther off, six miles north across the Thames, he could easily make out Raynham Station. Beyond that, just a faint pencil line against the sky, Romford. He could try and get through to the bigwigs in Whitehall, or he could signal Wally up there and see if he was seeing the same on his board. He decided on Wally. Back inside, Albert cranked up the generator that powered the talker and dialed in 1-4, the code for Romford. Pressing his ear to the brass horn of the device, he could hear the machinery clicking and crackling as connections were made. The bell at the other end began to ring. They went back a very long way, him and Wally. Joined the service together in 88, the year Queen Victoria remarried, He and Wally had manned a station together then before all the new-fangled automation. Seen a lot of trouble together in the early days with all the riots against the halfpenny air tax. Building the 16 towers around London, the Ring of Roses, had cost a fortune right enough. Worth it, though. He remembered life beforehand when the tainted fogs came rolling in grey and yellow off the Thames and people started choking and hacking their guts up. "'Each morning they lined the bodies up in the streets "'before shipping them off on barges to bury at Gravesend. "'He thought about Alfie, his twin brother, "'lying there so peaceful like he'd just fallen asleep. Five brothers and two sisters lost over the years, "'all taken by the bad airs, "'and his old dad carrying them one by one down to the barges, "'returning each time with his arms empty and his eyes wide. "'It had all seemed so normal,' It was what happened. People had lots of kids in the hope some would survive. Now, with the sweet air pumped out from the towers, it was unthinkable. A distant memory from the bad old days. A story you told disbelieving, jeering kids. Let them jeer. At least they were alive. He'd been little more than a kid himself when they started building the towers. The sight of them, tall against the blue sky, had filled him with hope after so much death. Their great sails were like the wings of angels, slowly unfurling. He joined up to man one on the day they opened their doors, running the gauntlet of the mob. He thought his dad wasn't even going to let him go, the last of his eight children and their mother dead too. But instead he squeezed Albert tight, something he never did, and smiled. Go on, son. You go and do this. Put an end to all this dying, eh? Then his dad had taken out the Hardwick three-shot pistol he always carried and handed it to him. And take my old barking iron, son. You use it if you need to. If someone tries to stop you, keep it ready. Albert had never once seen his father fire the gun. A gentleman, as well as a gentleman, he carried it to protect his family from the purses and thugs of the East End, but it hadn't been able to save any of them from the diseased air of London's miasmas. In the end, what with the army holding back the mob, Albert hadn't needed the gun. Still, he kept it in his inside pocket close to his heart. All he had left of his old dad. He'd become a vaporman that same day, he and Wally standing next to each other in line while the crowd beyond the line of soldiers swore and spat at them. You didn't get mobs like that these days, did you? Didn't hear from the crackpots who insisted tiny creatures swimming around in the air and water made you ill. Their animalcules that you couldn't see, couldn't smell. Amazing, the fairy tales people believed. It didn't take a genius to spot that people got ill when the foul stenches came floating in over the city. The talker bell was still clanging in his ear. A cold dread took hold of his innards. Wally had never missed a day's work, not even when his missus gave birth. His absence now alarmed Albert much more than the lights on his board advancing towards London. He could rely on Wally. Albert tried again in case he'd the wrong number, but the same thing happened. Maybe the talkers were playing up too. He decided to try Whitehall. He dialled in zero, zero. This time, a crisp, boyish voice answered immediately. Whitehall Central Control. Some lad, barely out of public school. Always the way these days. Since the war with the Hun had kicked off, they got younger and younger. Dartford here. Seeing some very strange signals. Half me board's gone red. Is it another exercise? They were forever playing their war games, pretending zeppelins or squadrons of exploding biplanes were crossing English soil. The towers were heavily defended, of course. Batteries of artillery all around them. They just never bothered to tell him what they were doing. Of course it isn't a drill, man. You would have been notified. You've started up your engine, haven't you? A slight note of alarm in the lad's voice told Albert everything he needed to know. Of course I have. I know what I'm doing, don't I? Coming up to speed now. But this miasma's huge. It can't be real. The early warning stations right across Essex and Kent have lit. Of course it's bloody real. The balloon's gone up. The Huns' big attack. Just make sure you stay at full power, understand? Of course. The connection dropped. He'd meant to ask about Wally. Replacing his nosegay, he looked back up at the board. The line of red crept closer and closer. The scale of it was incredible, like nothing he'd seen before. Bastards must have waited for the right winds, then salted effluvia right across the marshes and coastal mudflats to generate a cloud that fast. He thought he'd seen it all. If the towers hadn't been there to sweeten the air, it would be barges to Gravesend all over again. Albert strode across the control room to the dials controlling the station's steam engine, housed deep within its foundations. As he turned control wheels, he could feel the thrumming through his feet as the great machine awoke. He looked through the westerly window, towards the capital. The vast blades of the tower's fan were beginning to move, ponderous at first but picking up speed as the two six-inch chains hauled them round. On a day like this, in this wind, you'd feel the whole tower rocking once they got up to speed, like being at sea. He opened the valves to the underground vats. Droplets of rose water began to spray out in front of the fan from the mesh of tiny pipes. Two hundred gallons an hour. Within minutes, once the machinery had warmed up, a cone of aerosolized sweet air would be drifting westwards over houses and streets. He'd done his job. Whatever was coming at them, at least London was protected. He stepped outside to check his droplet concentration. There was no obvious difference to the air, but he wasn't concerned. It took time for it to sweeten properly here in the backwash from the fan. He just hoped they had enough rose water to last. Prevailing westerlies meant the rich folks of Hounslow and Uxbridge got all the attention. The East was ignored. He told them often enough, but perhaps now they'd listen. Down below, the soldiers had stopped racing around and were lying prone in readiness. What were they going to do? Shoot at the air? They must have known what was coming. Little more than boys, too. Ordered to defend the tower at all costs. On that side of the fan, they wouldn't be protected. Only their cardboard war office nosegays to protect them when the cholera hit. He felt sorry for them. At least he was safe up here. Hello. The voice behind him. Albert spun round, confused. How could someone else be up here? Before he could speak, the crack of a gun slammed him backwards against the iron railing in a heap, pain banging through him. "'He watched a young man disentangle himself from his web of climbing ropes. "'The Hun, here. It wasn't possible.' "'Albert tried to speak, but couldn't. "'He tried to rise, but the pain tore through his chest, "'pinning him to the ground. "'The stranger glanced over at him, smiled ruefully, "'then disappeared inside the control room. "'A few seconds later, "'Albert felt the rhythmic thrum of the engine quieting. "'Strangely, It gave him a flash of hope. If the soldiers on the ground saw the fan stopping, they'd know something was up. He watched the blades roar by against the sky. They'd already slowed slightly. Then the jets of misted water cut out, and the steam engine down in the ground woke up again. No! Albert could only croak uselessly. The man had merely been trying to work the controls. Now it looked like the blades were working, but they were blowing nothing but air across London. Bad air once the miasma hit. The fan would actually be helping spread the cloud of cholera across the city. It would be the old days again. Only who'd be left to line the bodies up? people were weak these days, no resistance any more. Your royalty and such-like had their own private sweet air supplies, but most relied on the towers. The Hun would turn London into a graveyard. The bell of the talker clanged inside. Albert heard the man stride across to answer it. He had a moment to do something. He could think of only one thing to try. He had to be quick. The bullet had obviously done him serious damage. Any breath might be his last. Gritting his teeth against the pane, feeling like he was ripping his chest open with each movement, he turned over and made it up onto his knees. Inside, the Hun talked to someone, white, almost likely. He sounded like he'd lived all his life in the East End. They were clever. You had to give it to them. Yes, yeah, at full capacity now, Albert heard. Everything running smoothly, like I said. course I have, yeah. Albert reached up to grasp the railing with one hand. All he had to do was to haul himself up onto his legs and let himself topple over the side. The soldiers were all looking the other way, but they'd hear him thump into the ground. They'd know something was up. It was all he could do. "'Oh, no, you don't!' Another shot. Blood dashed from Albert's arm, sprang into his eyes. He slumped back to the floor of the balcony, a new note of pain ringing through him. "'Can't have you doing that now, can we?' the Hun said. "'Not after all the trouble we've gone to.' The man stood over Albert, a brown leather boot filling his vision. The Hun's voice had changed now, the foreigner in him clear. Albert tried to reply, but no words came. The man knelt down beside him. His face was boyish. Couldn't have been much older than the soldiers down on the ground. "'What do you think?' asked the man. "'Half an hour before the Mayan cloud reaches us? "'An hour until London is covered?' "'Albert shifted, groaned. "'Yes, I think that's about right,' the man continued. "'And then, with the capital broken, "'the rest of the country will fall like a house of cards. "'No need for long years of war, "'one quick victory, a simple decapitation. "'So much better, don't you think? "'So much more civilised. "'One empire falls and another takes its place.' "'The stranger sounded almost sorry about it. "'Albert closed and opened his eyes, tried to clear his clogged throat. "'Well, I can see you're in no mood for conversation,' said the man. "'And I should wear my mask anyway. We both know what's coming, eh?' "'The man stood and walked away to gaze out over London. "'Albert tried to rise, but couldn't. "'He tried to sort through the various strands of pain filling his body, "'the sharp pain in his arm where the second bullet had struck, "'the great tearing agony in his chest where the first shot had hit him.' Strange, though. A shot like that should have killed him outright. It hurt like hell and he was winded, but he was also still breathing just about. How was that possible? He reached up to feel his wound, expecting there to be blood. A lot of blood, warm and sticky. But his chest was dry. There was only the reassuring weight of his old dad's gun in his breast pocket. The gun. "'That was it. So it had saved one of them after all. "'He hoped his old dad was looking down from somewhere and had seen. "'The bullet must have hit the gun and bounced off. "'He was bruised, a rib-cracked or two, maybe, but nothing more. "'Watching the back of the Hun, "'Albert reached into his pocket for the gun. "'He probably only had one shot. "'He'd never fired the weapon either, "'but it was loaded and ready, and the enemy was only feet away. "'Surely he couldn't miss.' His hand shook as he aimed. Fortunately, he was left-handed and the second bullet had struck him in the right forearm. Albert fired. The Hun spun round, shock on his face, but then he was dashing forwards towards Albert. Somehow he'd missed. Albert fired again, the Hun nearly on top of him. This time the bullet struck, sending the man spinning to one side. As he fell, he cracked his head on the iron railing with a sickening crunch. He lay on the balcony, unmoving. If his old dad was watching from somewhere, he'd be smiling now for sure. His gun had saved Albert and it might have saved London too. Albert didn't have much time. The first tendrils of the miasma would be rolling over the roofs and streets at any moment. Clenching his teeth, he hauled himself back onto his knees and began to crawl back inside the station. The agony of it was terrible, but he refused to stop. Inside, the map showed Red right across, only one set of lights unlit before the ring of towers. He had to get the Rosewater operating again. At least it looked like the Hun hadn't smashed the machinery. But, of course, they'd need London to be protected once they took control. They needed the towers, too. Albert worked his way across the floor, crying out like a little child each time he pulled himself forwards. It was a race, him against the advancing tide of Red on the board. Finally, he reached the dials and wheels. Now he had to haul himself upwards to operate the controls. He tried once, but the pain of it was too much and he sagged back to the floor. On the wall, the final line of lights lit. The miasma was here. He had to act. Screaming out loud, he lunged upwards for the edge of the control panel above him. He pulled himself to his knees and reached for the wheel of the rosewater valve with his fingertips. Slowly, agonisingly slowly, he began to turn it. After a few moments, his vaporman's ears picked up the change in sound to the machinery, the extra hiss. He collapsed back on the floor in a heap, breathing heavily like he'd just run up the stairs. His station was blowing again, but the others might not be. He had to reach Whitehall, too, to tell them what had happened. With his shaky fingers, it took him three attempts to dial 00, zero into the talker. Whitehall Central Control. His voice was a little more than a whisper. Dartford! there. Here, The Hun! Just shot me! Is this some kind of a joke? It was Albert's turn to be angry now. "'Course it ain't no bloody joke. "'Tell the army to get up each tower now, boy!' The soldier at the other end paused for only a moment. "'Right, we will do!' The line went dead. Albert sat back. He wondered if Wally was still alive up there in Romford. Wally would have fought too. Most likely he hadn't been as lucky as Albert, his best friend all these years killed by the Hun. It was incredible.' He glanced outside at the turning fan. He should check his droplet concentration. The controls were delicate. If the Hun had tampered with them, the droplets would be too large, or there wouldn't be enough of them, and central London would still be unprotected. Teeth gritted against the pain once again. Stopping to breathe repeatedly, he worked his way back outside. Once there, he sniffed deeply. The stench of the cholera was clear now, thick and oily in the air. He could make out the sweet smell of roses too, but it was faint, far too faint to be effective. It took time for the air to sweeten, of course, or maybe the machinery had been damaged after all. The Hun lay on the balcony beside him, an ugly red wound on the side of his head. Was he dead? No. No. Albert could see the man was still breathing, unconscious. Suddenly furious, Albert lifted his pistol once more. He had one more shot. He pointed the gun at the Hun's face. How dare they do this? Thousands could die here, millions. Albert's finger twitched on the trigger. He had only to squeeze a little harder and the Hun would have his grinning face blasted off. Albert Crow hesitated. The man lying there peacefully, with his eyes closed, reminded him of someone. Another boy lying, as if asleep. Albert crouched, unmoving, for long moments, holding the gun to the man's face, but not firing. Finally, he dropped the weapon. Enough. He'd done all he could. The army could deal with the Hun. His job was to protect people, put an end to all this dying. He could hear the calls of the soldiers as they clattered up the stairs to secure the tower. He felt the tower swaying, although whether from the wind or because he was losing consciousness, he couldn't be sure. Through the iron railings, he could see the miasma streaming over the houses below, obscuring them completely in its yellow filth. It was like being in a ship on the sea, a sea of poison flooding his city. Only it was poisonous no more. He could smell it now, the beautiful smell of roses. Albert closed his eyes, filling his lungs with the sweetened air flooding out over London.
0: hear the snap of my fingers you will be back with us. I trust you enjoyed the journey and did not bring back any cholera with you. Simon Kewin is the author of over 100 published short stories. He lives in England with his wife and their daughters. His wife is a microbiologist, so he doesn't really believe this stuff about bad air. He is currently working on the third volume of his Clovenland Fantasy Trilogy. Find him at uk Our reader this evening was Richard Elin a recording engineer, writer, and designer based in Cambridge, England. He is technical director of internet radio station Radio Real and co-host and editor of Designing Worlds, a weekly online TV show about design and designers in virtual environments. He also creates marketing materials for clients in the consumer and professional audio fields. The story music was from the Coglaments by Spiky, from the album Carnival Symposium, available at spikey.fr. As for bad air, I will be holding on to this plague mask for the time being, just in case. When technology fails, one must resort to older methods. Consider that and visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Give us some reviews on iTunes. And if you're feeling generous, make a donation so we can buy more stories. Our authors deserve a better rate. Our theme song is Ashes, Ashes by DEVM. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.